Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine. I'm Chris Marshall and on this edition of the podcast I'm joined by my colleagues Margaret Taylor, Jack Thompson and Louise Wilson to discuss the upcoming edition of the magazine and what's been happening in the world of Scottish politics. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has just finished making a statement in Parliament amid what she calls an extremely concerning rise in Covid cases. Um, Jack, the situation is uh, starting to look quite bad, isn't it, in terms of the number of cases? Yeah, and it's kind of, it's, it's felt that way, hasn't it, for the past week or, you know, past couple of weeks where we're seeing numbers of daily cases which are quite, you know, astronomical. We've seen records hit kind of quite a few times, um, cases breaching 7,000, you know, on some days. So it certainly felt like action was needed um, and, you know, there was speculation about whether that might be a circuit breaker, which the First Minister was kind of quick to say, you know, we're not considering a circuit breaker. Um, one of the other things yeah. though, that was kind of reported to be being considered was uh, vaccine passports and it's just been confirmed that um, the plan is to go ahead with, you know, a form of vaccine passports, passports which will, um, you know, have to be approved by the Parliament, but you know, given the kind of makeup of the parliament, you'd expect that to go ahead. So it looks like that's going to be the route that they're going to go down in the first instance before maybe reverting back to other restrictions. Yeah, and I mean, what what does everyone think about vaccine passports? I mean, Louise, what what, what do you think? I mean, I'm I I myself am fairly relaxed about them. I mean, I know a lot of people think that it's the beginning of the end and the start of some sort of totalitarian state. But if I was going to a gig, for example, I would like to know that. You know, most of the people in the gig, if not everyone in the gig, has been has been vaccinated. Yeah, and I think that's the choice, really, isn't it? You know, we've had a few of the reaction um, statements already coming in, saying like from a lot of venues that will be affected, saying we don't like it, but it's better than being shut down. And yeah, I think I'm in the same camp. I mean, I'm not. A, I mean, I'm not particularly against the idea, but you know, it. it there is some arguments there about civil liberties and not wanting sort of um, things like that preventing you from doing what you want to do. But equally, if the the alternative is going into lockdown again in winter, I, I'd rather go for the, the vaccine passports. Yeah, and I mean, Mar- Margaret, it does seem like, uh, you know, a lot of this has been blamed on schools going back, but it does seem like a lot of it when you're out and about that we've gone from a position of having quite, uh, strict, severe restrictions to having no restrictions at all, and, and in a lot of people's minds, that has basically meant life has returned to normal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you walk around the streets, and it's like there's nothing happening at all. Uh, masks don't look to be particularly the norm anymore. I mean, certainly in supermarkets or whatever, people are wearing them, but I don't think people are getting quite the dirty looks if they don't have them on that they, they would have received before for whether that was a good thing or not. But yeah. The, Streets are crowded, transport's crowded, and people are very much going about life as normal, which I suppose is is a good thing in a sense because we want to get back to that, but with with the way that the numbers are, and I guess we haven't really seen the full extent of the impact of that on the health service yet, it's probably, caution is probably a good thing. Yeah, I mean, Jack, uh, First Minister, said that today, that we're still not seeing... Uh, you know, big numbers of people in intensive care. Um, but she she mentioned the figure of 10,000 cases a day and she said that if we get to 10,000 cases a day, even if a very small percentage of those 
end up in intensive care or end up in hospital. That's still a, a small percentage of a large number. That's still a lot of people ending up in hospital. Yeah, and that's kind of been, you know, something that she's reiterated quite a few times over the past few weeks is, you know, it doesn't kind of take a genius to figure out that a small percentage of a high number um, could still potentially be quite a high number. Um, and I think as well, you know, a lot of the kind of, you know, it still seems that the vaccines are kind of breaking that link, you know, between um, cases and serious illness. But it it might not really be much solace for people who are in that position, you know, who become seriously ill, you know. Um, so I think there's that to, to take account of as well. When you think about the figures, there are still numbers of people, albeit, you know, not particularly high. There are still people out there who are getting seriously ill. So perhaps something that we don't, you know, want to lose sight of. And I'm sure it's something that the First Minister as well is probably, you know, trying to make sure that people don't lose sight of. Um, but and it looks like hospitals are kind of generally managing, you know, at the moment, although I know um, Hamza Yusuf was saying, I think just the other day, that, you know, it's with absences and things like that, we could be at a sort of perfect storm stage. So it makes sense that, you know, it's something that they're kind of closely monitoring. Yeah, Louise, I mean, we've got the we've got the added worry as well that as people go back to their daily lives and start to uh, mingle more and socialise more, that we could also get a, a, a quite a big um, flu surge over the summer, which is which is yet another thing for the NHS to worry about. Yeah, um, obviously, you know, flu um, for the, for the, well last year was actually relatively low, and that's that's as a result of the restrictions being in place. Um, so. You know, we actually saw a bit of a benefit in terms of, of flu deaths, um, but yeah, you don't want to add add COVID on on top of flu this year. Just incidentally, I got the first train that I've got in eighteen months. Uh, well, the sh- first um, Scotland train in the last yeah. eighteen months last weekend. Um, it happened to be on the Sunday, which of course is when ScotRail was striking. So it was the one LNER service um, <laughs> between Stirling and Edinburgh that day, and it was absolutely rammed. Um, so I had my face mask on, my partner had my face mask on, but there was a couple around us that, that didn't. Um, and, and that just, it I just felt, felt I think they've come out and said, insisted on wearing masks on trains, haven't they? Because the other week um, mm. I was on a train and lots of people weren't wearing them at all. But I think it was that kind of, it, it was a week of beyond zero and people didn't really know what the rules mm. were. It's like, okay, lots of rules have lifted, but Scott Rail's rules perhaps weren't, all that obvious so I, th- I think a lot of people had them kind of around their chins <laughs> ready to pull yeah, them up. people people who wear face masks around their chins i mean that's uh, not not really understood i mean that puts you in a very difficult situation though if you're if you're on a bus or a train and, and somebody's not wearing a mask then to do. You I, I wasn't sure myself. Like I was sat at a table on my own. I wasn't sure if I should have mine on or not for the duration of the journey. And then I did yeah. see the next day a tweet from Scott Rail saying that their own rules specifically are that you must wear them when you're travelling. I think it's just that mixed messaging. People just aren't quite sure yeah. at the moment. People are still unsure. And Louise, moving away from COVID, this week we've had the two Green co-leaders uh, confirmed as junior ministers in the Scottish Government. What, what are they going to be getting up to? Um, yeah, so their positions reflect much of what was in the Green Deal. It's about active travel. It's about energy efficiency. There's a bit in there about tenant rights. Um, so that'll be, they were confirmed yesterday, and that'll be really interesting to see going forward, given that they are the first um, Green ministers in, in the UK ever. Um, there's also, obviously, that's had 
um, I guess a bit of a, a negative impact on 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 them in Parliament. It means that they get a bit less cash that opposition usually gets um, to sort of what, mount mount their opposition, I guess. Um, and it also means that they won't get a question at uh, first minister's questions as regularly. They won't get speaking slots in debates because officially they are part uh, part of government. Um, of course, they must have seen all that coming before they agreed to the deal but um, there was a lot of hay made yesterday about how uh, how they'd lost out on, on the, those important functions so do, do you think there's still a net benefit for them to, to be in government even though they lose out on all the all the stuff that they have as, as an opposition party uh, I mean it's difficult to say isn't it this uh, early on um, presumably they've weighed up their options and said actually yeah it makes more sense for us to be in government. I suppose the danger here, and and it's the same with any sort of party that smaller party that goes into coalition or just shy of coalition, is that any positives that come of it, the majority party is always going to have the more resources to claim those as wins, and then they can blame the smaller party for anything that doesn't go ahead. Um, uh, you know, there's always the question of how much sway will actually the Greens hold in in government. Um, you know, the being junior minister positions as opposed to cabinet secretary positions is an interesting one. Um, and, and you know, they've had to sign up to a bunch of SNP policy, which isn't green policy. Um, and you wonder where where the shifts are actually going to come in the long term. Yeah, I mean, Margaret, a lot of the, the interesting stuff is in the stuff that's left out, you know, the excluded matters and... You know, looking at the kind of Green Manifesto or the Greens Manifesto in years gone by, that's it's in some of those uh, areas. You know, things like um, getting rid of nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, moving away from oil and gas in like a very quick timescale. That's that's where they're really interesting, um, if pretty radical, and they've been kind of neutered on stuff. Well, that, that's exactly the thing, isn't it? The, the, the radicalness of their of their policies, and that's it. It was interesting this week that um, the interview that Greta Thunberg gave to, to the BBC, saying that yeah, well, whatever <laughs> the, the Greens are in, maybe they're they're not quite as bad as the others. But actually, what she was saying, and I think what m- most campaigners would say, is that actually, if if we're going to have a proper green agenda, if we're going to reach net zero, if we're going to decarbonize the economy, it needs to be radical. It needs to be a, a huge systemic change, not kind of little nudges that a very, very minor partner in government can can make. Yeah, and um, one final thing to talk about this week, Jack, we've had the slightly surreal sight of um, Michael Gove um, <laughs> dancing, dancing in Aber- Aberdeen. Uh, what, what did you, I know you're a regular visitor to Aberdeen, to Aberdeen. what did you what did you make of that? Were you disappointed not to be up in Aberdeen when it bumped into Michael Gove on the dance floor? Um, I think it's best that I reserve comment on that one, isn't it? Why? I mean, you, you, have, you, do, you do, it's just one of those surreal situations, isn't it, that you see, you know, you, it pops up every now and then, a politician kind of appearing in, you know, a pretty random place um, and doing something to make people laugh. Life is um, I still wonder... Why shouldn't he have a nice dance? <laughs> exactly, no, it looks like um, it looks Absolutely. like he was, he was having a great time, and you sometimes wonder, you know, was it was it perhaps perhaps you know carefully planned so that he kind of looked like he was um, you know, a man of the people as such, or or who knows? But yeah, I mean, Lucy was having a a great time, and it, lo- it looks like he did pay the entry fee, didn't he? Um, despite a bit of kind of debility over that 
I can't. I can't imagine it was planned. I can imagine lots of uh, PR people in government pulling their hair out when they when they saw that Daily Record story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I saw um, I, a clip of uh, Michael Gove. Somebody had uh, taken some some of uh, a clip from Train Spotting where uh, Ren perfectly. Yeah, where Ren Renton's on the dance floor and they'd spliced in Michael Gove in the background, and it, it just it was perfect, absolutely perfect. I saw a clip of Mr. Bean dancing, and he had the exact suit and the exact moves of Michael Gove. Yeah, he's uh, he's got he's got his own unique style. Let's uh, <laughs> put it that way. Um, so mo- moving on to um, moving on to the magazine, and um, the, the the next magazine comes out next week. But Margaret, you've been uh, you've been looking at COP twenty six and speaking to people about what might what might be achieved. Yeah, that's right. So it's two months exactly now until COP takes place in Glasgow, um, and we're kind of looking at what. What the hopes are, what the fears are for the summit this year. I mean, it's obviously been put off from last year, so things that were pressing a year ago are even more pressing now. Um, specifically, some of the rules around the, the Paris Agreement, which was obviously signed at COP in 2015. Um, there are some, well, lots of countries have made their commitments around net zero in the wake of that. That that isn't legally binding, but then there are some rules that need to be put in place. Um, I mean, what, the thing that the thing that I, I did find really interesting was was the stuff about basically smaller countries being disenfranchised, yeah. and you, you talk about the Pacific Islanders, I think, is the example that's used, and they they've somehow managed to round up a couple of Pacific Islanders living in Glasgow. My first thought on that was, why the hell would you move from the Pacific Islands to Glasgow? But yeah. interestingly, I have a feeling those people were working at one of the universities, so. They- oh, okay. <laughs> I, I think that that's what they were doing in Glasgow. But yeah, I mean, in all seriousness, the Pacific Islands, they're uh, one of the, the places that, that's really severely affected by climate change. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, they're, they're, they're like not going to be here to have a say in, in what's going on at COP because of um, COVID and the pandemic and travel restrictions, etc. Um, the, the, there's talk about the decision-making parts of the conference, perhaps moving to a hybrid model where the people that can make it here will be in the room and then others can dial in. But again, that puts those people at a big disadvantage. So we're going to have all like the European nations, which send massive delegations. They're all going to be here. They'll be in the room when the decisions are being made. And then people in the Global South, Pacific Islands, places like that, they may be able to dial in, but then they have problems with power supplies, with internet connections, etc. And, and also the day and night effects, like because of time differences. So they, they'll be staying up overnight to take part in discussions here. So that that puts them at a serious disadvantage. And um, the, the organisation Stop Climate Chaos Scotland, it, it was them that organised this delegation of Pacific Islanders who are actually in Glasgow. So they, they don't need to know anything about the arguments. They don't need to know much about climate change. They basically just need to be the mouthpiece for mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the people in the Pacific Islands who, in their daytime, they can sit up, they can study what was discussed during their nighttime here, and then they can feed in to the people who are here who will go and be their advocates and their, their spokespeople at the conference. It doesn't solve anything by any means. That doesn't solve everything by any means, but it, it, it will at least ensure that they will have some kind of a voice at the conference. Uh, and Louise, what, what's your sense about just how optimistic we should be about COP26? I mean, I know it's a really difficult question to answer, but 
Um, there's this famous quote from John Kerry where he says, you know, basically this is the world's last best chance to solve climate change. But I can't say I've heard of a huge amount of optimism, optimism coming from anyone about, about COP26. Yeah, I mean, there is definitely that feeling among, I mean, basically everyone that I've spoken to about it, that, you know, this is the one, this is the big opportunity. If we walk away from Glasgow um, in November without having secured some sort of Glasgow agreement, then that's kind of it and we've not done enough. Um, But at the same time, I've not, yeah, I'm the same. I've not heard a lot of people actually be like, yes, I think we'll definitely come away with something. I don't know that there's a Glasgow agreement on the table. I don't think that's the point of this one. I think the point is to finalise Paris. I don't think anyone's particularly looking for a Glasgow agreement. Oh, see, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think the idea is to kind of check... Going for a Glasgow agreement. Um, I was speaking to someone um, way back in, in March, and he was saying that if we don't come away with a Glasgow agreement, then mm. it will be considered a failure. Um, and that, that was one of the sort of subnational government bodies um, mm. saying that. So, uh, I mean, I've, I mean, there you are. There's just, it's different views on what is expected. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, and you know, mm. the UK government in particular isn't really saying what a successful outcome would be just yet. And that mm. could also be seen as it hedging its bets so it can say whatever mm. happens is a success. Mm-hmm. But it might not necessarily be a success in how a lot of people would view it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the Paris Agreement is all you know often held up as this historic agreement. But the way I've heard it framed was that basically Paris was the easy bit. Paris was everyone agreeing that the world was in dire straits and we needed to do something. And Glasgow is the really difficult job of actually saying to people, this is what we need to do to achieve Paris. Paris was the PR, wasn't it? Everyone and that's going to be that's going to be really problematic. Made this like brilliant agreement, aren't we brilliant? Yeah. Look at us, we're, we're going to save the world. But but actually doing it in practice is a hard bit, isn't it? And no one's no one's doing that. Um, but I mean, you spoke to to Lana Slater, the new the new Green Minister, recently, didn't you, Chris, about that? And and she wasn't exactly optimistic either. No, um, the, the interview obviously will appear in the magazine next week. But um, yeah, Lorna Slater, I wouldn't say was massively optimistic about COP, which surprised me, uh, given that given that she's a green politician. Um, but it, it's something that you hear again and again, and, and there's there's I think there's a massive kind of split in the in the climate camp about about just how we approach this issue. You know, do we approach it through um, through politics and through, and is that how, as individuals, we have agency, or do you go down the extinction rebellion route and try and just wreak havoc? And I mean, I personally, I personally, uh, you know, I, I'm worried about the climate. And the more you read, the more worrying uh, and, and frightening it becomes. But I don't see how extinction rebellion will achieve anything by closing roads and you know, making it more difficult for people to get to their work. I mean, I remember seeing something last year or maybe the year before where uh, Extinction Rebellion were, were on a tube train and where they stopped a tube train from moving. You think, look, these are people that are already using public transport and you're making it more difficult for them to uh, to get to get to work. So uh, I don't necessarily understand. I don't necessarily agree that that's the way forward. I mean, does anyone ever, does anyone else have a, a view on Extinction Rebellion? I mean, I think they've certainly worked in getting stuff on 
to the agenda you know it's it's made yeah. headlines um was it extinction rebellion that did that stunt a couple of years ago where they chained themselves to the scottish parliament or was that another climate I'm not sure. anyway that was quite successful at getting all the leaders of the parties out out to talk about it um then they stopped all the pr- the printing presses in london didn't they a couple mm. of years ago um but yeah it comes down to you know it, it, if it's i wonder how much it's doing in terms of getting public opinion on board if they're actually actually just getting in the way of people and people are going to be rolling their eyes thinking, oh, it's Extension Rebellion again, or whether it is actually mm-hmm. working at getting people to talk about climate change. Um, I think difficult. there's a bit of that. I, I, I do think there's a bit of that. It's like, mm-hmm. I suppose it's like the trade unions, isn't it? Like when they're going in for an agreement, they'll ask for the absolute world, knowing that they have a point where they will actually reach agreement. But like, I think that there is a degree of like... You have to kick up a hell of a stink to get anywhere near what, what might be needed or what, what you actually would agree to. I mean, I don't know if that's actually Extinction Rebellion strategy. But well, yeah, I suppose. I mean, you're mentioning mentioning uh, the trade unions. It's similar to like strikes of the past, isn't it? Yeah. You know, if you uh, if you're a train driver and, and you go on strike, at what point do the public stop? Uh, sympathising with your cause, you know, if, if if after two weeks of not being able to get the train to work, do you suddenly go? You know what? I was on side with the train drivers, and, and now because I can't get to work anymore, they've they've managed to alienate me. Yeah, yeah. But but the um, unions know that, don't they? So that they will then agree something less than what they were asking for in the first place. Yeah. I guess it's just all that that dance, isn't it? Like which way it goes? Yeah, but Extinction Rebellion are literally asking for the earth. They, you know, it's not it's not a figurative thing. They are literally asking for the earth. And it's difficult to know how politicians, elected politicians, will be able to will be able to appease them anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. Um Jack, you've also been looking at climate issues for, for the MAG. Who have you been speaking to? Yeah, so I spoke to Nigel Topping, who is the um the UK government's high level climate action champion, um, which is a Bit of a tongue twister that one, um, but yeah, he um, he was a he's a very interesting individual actually. Kind of um, he's was appointed kind of in I think it was January twenty twenty um, for, for two um, COP cycles to sort of drive kind of action um, among um, businesses and, and the like. Um, but he's also got a connection to Scotland. He was he was born here, um, born in Glasgow. Kind of lived uh, in the north, um, and he actually credits it for a lot of his um, for kind of shaping his, his passion for the environment and for the outdoors. Um, and so he kind of talked about that. He's he's quite a, a down to earth, self deprecating guy. Kind of talks about um, you know how he how he came to. To kind of be involved in, in what he's doing now, um, and how you know, really, he's quite he's quite brutally honest actually about the situation that we face in terms of the kind of um, the fight against climate change, and you know, kind of says in pretty blunt terms that we really are you know messing things up, but also kind of talks about you know that activist mindset of always remaining hopeful, and he looked ahead to COP twenty six as well, and he still seems you know very hopeful and positive about what can be done there and what can be achieved. Um, and I think he sees it as a real opportunity for, you know, for it to cut through, you know, the kind of the climate change sort of um, issue, you know, for it to cut through into everyday conversation, you know, while this is going on, because I think sometimes that can be an issue. Um, I don't know if that's something that you guys agree with, but I, I sometimes think that, you know, 
it doesn't quite maybe, you know, you see it, politicians will talk about it, you maybe see it in the news, but I don't know if it kind of cuts through to everyone, you know, how important an issue it is for us to kind of tackle. I think unless people have been flooded or whatever, you don't think about it, do you? Like, it's all very well to see Mm. images of other places that are flooded and hear about warming and all that, but unless you experience something yourself, I think that's why the reaction to the pandemic was so, people universally got on board with it because everyone was impacted. Yeah, well, I mean, I saw some polling today. I can't remember where it was. It was one of these things that popped up on Twitter, and it and it seems to suggest that the climate is now in the sort of top uh, top three issues that the electric care about, going from basically nowhere about five ten years ago. No one really cared about it. It was a it was a sort of fringe minority interest, and it's now you know in the sort of top two or three things that, that people care about. Um, and I think that's only going to become. Uh, more the case is, is more of these sort of dramatic weather events happen. I mean, I personally, you know, um, I've always been aware of climate change, but it's only really in the last sort of few years that I've started to, to, to read about it properly and listen, you know, you listen to podcasts and you read about it and, and it is, it is really frightening just the pace that it's coming. And I think, um, the, the thing that was worrying about the IPCC report was that we thought we had, more time to deal with these things than we actually do. The the extreme weather events that were predicted sort of 10, 20 years in the future, they seem to be coming kind of quite thick and fast. They're coming quicker than even the scientists thought, which is a real worry. So is, is Nigel Topping, um, is, he's optimistic then that some sort of deal will be will be struck at Cobb, Jack? I think to, he kind of talked more in general terms, you know, he didn't kind of really necessarily broach it um, in that sense it kind of said that you know as um, what what he said that I quite liked was that it kind of envisages a cop where you know people are going you know home at night or they'll go they'll go to the the pubs afterwards and they'll be talking about climate change and then they'll be talking about climate change over breakfast in the morning so he thinks it's a kind of real opportunity in November in Glasgow for you know the kind of um, the stuff that you know the positive stuff um, that is going on, you know, in Scotland, um, in some areas, to be kind of discussed and highlighted, um, but then also, you know, just the issue more generally to be kind of, um, you know, discussed and, and debated. Um, I think, um, you know, the real thing I think for me for COP twenty six, which is is probably going to prove important, is whether, you know, some of the um, is getting you know people around the table in terms of the big emitters and you know also the people that are affected really by the worst effects of climate change that's kind of i guess you know if they're able to do that and i know there was kind of um perhaps a bit of people were not sure whether um everyone's able is going to be able to get there because of you know issues with vaccines and things like that or um, getting them to delegates and stuff like that but i think it's important you know for for everyone to get around the table and to be able to talk about this um, as they kind of thrash out some of the issues. And Louise, you've um, you've written your sketch for the magazine uh, this week on uh, Dominic Rabb's travels, um, and he unluckily happened to be on a beach in Crete just as the Taliban, uh, who, who, according to Dominic Rabb, the Taliban surprised even themselves how quick they managed to capture Kabul. But I was just wondering, do you think uh, we might see the Greens appearing in a sketch at some point, or, or even the issue of climate change, or is climate change just too serious an issue that you can't write a sketch about it? Uh, 
I mean, that's a difficult question to answer, isn't it? Um, I mean, I dare say the Greens will make an appearance at, at some point in one, but I don't know whether it will be on the topic of, of climate change, per se. Maybe um, there'll be some COP26 dancing going on. But, I mean, yeah. you, you wouldn't have necessarily thought that the, the Taliban would be uh, part of a sketch either. So who can say? Who can say? <laughs> Indeed. And Margaret's right. If we get uh, Michael Gove at COP26 on the dance floor, you never know. Uh, okay, thanks everyone um, and uh, that's all for the podcast this week, uh, we'll be back next week please join us then Bye